0: Chapter Two of Tell It All by Fanny Stenhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. My First Introduction to Mormonism During my residence in France, my parents had left Saint Helier and returned to Southampton, England. To visit them now, I had to take a sailing vessel from Port Trier to the Isle of Jersey and thence I could take the steamer to Southampton. Monsieur and Madame de Bosque, together with the two little girls, accompanied me in their private carriage to Portrieux, a distance of forty miles, in order to confide me safely to the captain's care. As they wished me bon voyage and embraced me affectionately, Monsieur and Madame de Bosque handed me a valuable purse for pocket-money during my absence, and they all exhibited great anxiety for my welfare, saying over and over again, A revoir, as they entered their carriage to return to their happy home, thereby implying that this was not a final adieu, but that we should soon meet again. I cannot tell why it was— but I experienced at that moment a painful feeling of mental indecision about the future. I had no real reason to doubt my return to France and the certainty of a warm welcome when I should again greet those dear ones who were now leaving me in tears. But my mind was troubled by a vague feeling of uncertainty, which made me anything but happy. Filial affection and a sense of duty drew me towards my parents in England, while a feeling of gratitude, and, I think, another, more tender sentiment, turned the current of my thoughts towards the happy home at St. Brieux. It was not necessary for me to stop in Jersey for more than a few hours, but I wanted to revisit the scenes of my childhood's happy days and to speak again with those whom I had known and loved in early life. In later years the scenes and memories of childhood seem like the imaginings of a pleasant dream. A sweet charm is thrown around all that we then said and did. And the men and women who then were known to us are pictured in our recollection as beings possessing charms and graces such as never belonged to the commonplace children of earth. The glamour of a fairy wand is over all the past history of mankind. "'but upon nothing does it cast so potent a spell "'as upon the personal reminiscences of our own infant years. "'To me that little island had charms "'which no stranger could ever have discovered. "'And even now, after the lapse of so many long, eventful years, "'I often feel an earnest wish to visit again those rock-bound shores, "'to listen to the everlasting murmur of the wild, wild waves,' to watch the distant speck-like vessels far away upon the swelling ocean, and to drink in the invigorating breezes which seem to give life and energy to every pulsation of the living soul. But I must not theorize life has been to me too earnest and too painful to admit of much sentiment or fancy as I recall the past. Little as I thought it, during the short visit which I paid to my birthplace, the web of destiny was being woven for me in a way which I could not then have conjectured even in a dream. At saint Helier I heard for the first time of the Latter-day Saints, or Mormonites as they were more familiarly called. But I cannot express how perfectly astonished I was when I learned that my father, mother, sisters, and one of my brothers had been converted to the new faith. It was my own brother-in-law who told me this, He himself, with my sister, were apostate Mormons. They had been baptized into the Mormon Church, but became dissatisfied and abandoned it. The Saint-Heliers branch of the Latter-day Saints had had a turbulent experience. Their first teachings had been a mixture of Bible texts about the last days and arguments about the millennium, the return of the Jews to Palestine, THE RESURRECTION OF THE DEAD, AND A NEW REVELATION, AND A NEW PROPHET. BUT THE IMPROPER CONDUCT OF SOME OF THE ELDERS HAD DISGUSTED THE PEOPLE WITH THEIR DOCTRINES, AND THE TALES OF WICKEDNESS, WHICH I HEARD WERE, IF TRUE, CERTAINLY SUFFICIENT TO JUSTIFY THEM IN REJECTING SUCH INSTRUCTORS. THE MORE I HEARD OF THIS STRANGE RELIGION, THE MORE I WAS TROUBLED. YET, AS I KNEW MY PARENTS WERE DEVOTED CHRISTIANS, I could hardly believe that Mormonism was such a vile delusion and imposture as it had been represented to me, or they would never have accepted it. Still, it was possible that they had been led astray by the fascinations of a new religion. In this state of mind, I met in the street the wife of the Baptist minister whom I have already mentioned. She greeted me affectionately, and then began at once to warn me against the Latter-day Saints. I inquired what she knew of them, and she replied that personally she knew nothing, but she believed them to be the servants of the evil one, adding, There is a strange power with them that fascinates the people, and draws them into their meshes in spite of themselves. Let me entreat you not to go near them. Do not trust yourself at one of their meetings, or the delusion will take hold of you, too. I cannot ignore Mormonism in this way, I said, or pass it by with indifference for my parents, whom I tenderly love, have been blinded by this delusion. And I can do no less than investigate its teachings thoroughly, and expose its errors, and, if possible, save my father's family from ruin." She was not convinced that this was the wisest course for me to pursue, but I resolved at once to attend a meeting of the saints and judge for myself. My brother-in-law, when he heard of my intentions, tried to dissuade me, but, finding me determined, finally offered to escort me to the meeting place. What I heard on this occasion made a great impression on my mind and set me to thinking as I had never thought before. On returning to my sister's house, she asked me what opinion I had now formed of the Latter-day Saints. I replied that I had not yet formed any conclusion, but that what I had heard had given me serious cause for reflection. Oh, she said, you have caught the Mormon fever, I see. I felt a disposition to resent this implication, but I was half afraid that, after all, my sister was right. Much that I had heard could, I knew, be proved from Scripture, and the rest seemed to me to be capable of demonstration from the same authority. I resolved, however, to fortify myself against a too-easy credulity, and thought that probably if I heard more of these doctrines, I might be able to discover their falsity." On the following day, the elder, who had preached at the meeting, and who, by the way, is one of the present proprietors of the Salt Lake Herald, called to see me, as he had been intimate with my parents before they left the island. I hardly knew how to be civil to him, though he had done nothing to offend me, nor had he been the cause of my parents entering the Mormon church. But I disliked him solely on account of the stories which I had heard about the Mormons. Intending only to be kind to me, he told me that on the following day he proposed to take the steamer for Southampton, as he was going to attend a conference of the saints in London, and that he should be pleased to shew me any attentions while crossing the Channel, and would see me safe home in England. I confess I really felt insulted at a Mormon elder offering to be my escort." and although my trunks were ready packed for my departure by the same steamer, and Mr. Dunbar knew it, I thanked him politely but said I would not go by that boat. He tried to persuade me to change my mind and said that I should have to wait a whole week for another vessel, and at last I frankly told him the abhorrence I felt at the things I had heard about the Mormons, and that I should be afraid to travel in the same steamer with him or any of the Mormon elders who I regarded as no better than so many whited sepulchers. He, however, very kindly, took no offense, for he knew that I had been listening to those who disliked the saints. I felt ashamed at having been betrayed into such unladylike rudeness, but, notwithstanding, tried to persuade myself that his civility was, after all, an insult for I had conceived a detestation of every Mormon on account of the deception which I felt sure had been practiced upon my family. This feeling was not lessened by the consciousness that an impression had been made upon my own mind. The more in accordance with Scripture the teaching of the elders appeared, the more firmly I believed it must be a powerful delusion. Here I said, Satan has indeed taken the form of an angel of light to deceive, if possible, the very elect. Elder Dunbar, finding me unyielding, left by the next steamer and had a pleasant passage across the channel, and I remained on the island another week. During that interval my mind was haunted with what I had heard of this new gospel dispensation, as it was called. That angels had again descended from heaven to teach men upon earth? that a prophet had been raised up to speak again the mind of the Lord to the children of men, that the saints were partakers of the gifts of the Spirit, as in the early Christian church. All these assumed facts took the form of reality and came back into my mind, with a greater force every time I strove to drive them away, just as our thoughts do when we desire to sleep and cannot Our very efforts to dismiss them bring them back with greater force to torment us. We had an unusually bad passage across the Channel, which annoyed me all the more when I remembered my scornful refusal to go in the same boat with Elder Dunbar. On my arrival in Southampton, I soon discovered that my father, mother, and sisters were full of the spirit of Mormonism. They were rejoicing in it, ardently believing that it was the fullness of the everlasting gospel, as the elders styled it, and whatever I might think of the new religion, I was forced to confess that it brought into my father's house peace, love, kindness, and charity such as were seldom seen in many households of religious people. My sisters were completely changed in their manner of life, They cared nothing for the amusements which girls of their age usually crave and enjoy. Their whole thoughts seemed to be occupied with the church, attending the meetings of the saints and employing every leisure hour in preparing comforts for the elders who were traveling and preaching without purse and scrip. And in all this they were as happy as children. Of my parents I might say the same. My dear mother rejoiced in the belief that she had been peculiarly blessed in being privileged to live at a time when the last dispensation was revealed, and my father, though an invalid, rejoiced that he had entered into the kingdom by baptism. Such was the condition of my father's house, and who can wonder that, accustomed as I was to listen with respect to the opinions of my parents, I was more than ever troubled about the new religion which they had adopted. The first Sunday morning that I was in England, my parents asked me to accompany them to meeting, and I readily complied, as I wanted to hear more of the strange doctrines which, in some mysterious way, had made our family so happy, but which in other quarters had provoked such bitter hostility. I know now that this joyousness of heart is not peculiar to new converts to Mormonism, but may be found among the newly converted of every sect which allows the emotional feelings to come into play. To me, at the time, however, it was a mystery, but I must confess that the change which had taken place in those nearest and dearest to me, affecting me personally, and being so evidently in accordance with the teachings of the Saviour, led me to regard Mormonism with less antipathy. The bright side alone of the new faith was presented to the world abroad. We had yet to go to Utah and witness the effects of Brigham Young's teachings at home before we could know what Mormonism really was. I shall never forget the trial it was to my pride to enter the dirty, mean-looking room where the saints assembled at that time. No one would rent a respectable hall to them, and they were glad to obtain the use of any place which was large enough for their meetings. On the present occasion there was a very fair gathering of people who had come together influenced by the most varied motives. The presiding elder, I should here remark, that the word elder has among the Mormons no reference whatever to age, but is simply a rank in the priesthood called the meeting to order, and read the following hymn. The morning breaks, the shadows flee. Lo, Zion's standard is unfurled. The dawning of a brighter day majestic rises on the world. The clouds of error disappear before the rays of truth divine. The glory bursting from afar, wide o'er the nations, soon will shine. The Gentile fullness now comes in, and Israel's blessings are at hand. Lo, Judah's remnant, cleansed from sin, shall in the promised Canaan stand. Angels from heaven and truth from earth have met and both have record borne. Thus Zion's light is bursting forth to bring her ransomed children home. Every word of this hymn had a meaning peculiar to itself, relating to the distinctive doctrines of the saints. The congregation sang with an energy and enthusiasm which made the room shake again. Self and the outer world were alike forgotten, and an ecstasy of rapture seemed to possess the souls of all present. Then all kneeled down and prayer was offered for the prophet, the apostles, high priests, seventies, elders, priests, teachers, and deacons. Blessings were invoked upon the saints and power to convert the Gentiles, and as the earnest words of supplication left the speaker's lips, the congregation shouted aloud, Amen. There was no prepared sermon. There never is at a Mormon meeting. The people are taught that the Holy Ghost is mouth, matter, and wisdom. Whatever the preaching elder may say is supposed to come directly by inspiration from heaven and the saints, listening as they believe, not to his utterances, but to the words of God himself, have nothing to do but to hear and obey. The first speaker on this occasion was a young gentleman of respectable family who had been recently baptized and ordained. He, too, was from saint helier and I had known him from childhood. His address impressed me very much. He had been a member of the Baptist Church— and he related his experience, told how often he had wondered why there were not inspired men to teach the glad tidings of salvation to the world today, as there were eighteen centuries ago. He spoke of the joy which he experienced in being baptized into the Mormon Church, and realizing that he had received the gift of the Holy Ghost. The simplicity with which he spoke, his evident honesty, and the sacrifice he made in leaving the respectable Baptists and joining the despised Mormons were, I thought, so many evidences of his sincerity. Alas, how little could that young preacher conjecture how different the practical Mormonism in Utah was from the theoretical Mormonism which he had learned to believe in Europe before polygamy was known among the saints. A short time afterwards, he gave up his business, married an accomplished young lady, and went with her to Salt Lake City. There they were soon utterly disgusted with what they witnessed, apostatized, and set out for England. When they had gone three-fourths of their way back to the Missouri River, the young man, his wife, child, and another apostate and his wife were killed by Indians, Such, at least, was the report. But dissenting Mormons have always charged their taking off to the order of the leaders of the Mormon Church. But to return to the meeting. The reader must please forgive me if I dwell a little upon the events of that particular morning, for naturally they made a deep impression upon my own mind. It was there that I saw for the first time my husband who was to be... I had heard a good deal about a certain elder from my family and from the saints who visited at our house. They spoke with great enthusiasm of the earnestness with which he preached, of the influence which his addresses produced, and of his confidence in the final triumph of the kingdom. At that time, the summer of 1849, although the branch of the Mormon Church in Britain was in a most flourishing condition— There were not, in England, more than two or three American elders preaching the faith. For when, two years before the period of which I speak, the saints left Nauvoo and undertook that most extraordinary exodus across the plains to the Rocky Mountains, the missionary elders were all called home, and the work of proselytizing in Europe was left entirely to the native elders. To direct their labors, there was placed over them an American elder named Orson Spencer, a graduate of Dartmouth University, a scholar and a gentleman, a man well calculated from his previous Christian education to give an elevated tone to the teachings of the young English missionaries. Mormonism in England, then, had no resemblance to the Mormonism of Utah today. The Mormons were then simply an earnest religious people, in many respects like the Methodists, especially in their missionary zeal and fervor of spirit. The Mormon Church abroad was purely a religious institution, and Mormonism was preached by the elders as the gospel of Christianity restored. The Church had no political shaping, nor the remotest antagonism to the civil power. The name of Joseph Smith was seldom spoken, and still more seldom was heard the name of Brigham Young, and then only so far as they had reference to the Church of the Saints. About eighteen months before I visited Southampton, one of these missionaries had come into that town, without purse or scrip. He was quite a young man, and almost penniless, but he was rich in faith and overflowing with zeal. He knew no one there, and homeless and frequently hungry, he continued his labors. Of fasting he knew much, of feasting nothing. He first preached under the branches of a spreading beech tree in a public park, and when more favored, he held forth in a schoolroom or public hall. He had come to convert the people to Mormonism, or he was going to die among them, and before such zeal and determination, discouragements, of course, soon vanished away. He troubled the ministers of other dissenting churches when they found him distributing tracts and talking to their people. He was sowing broadcast dissatisfaction and discontent wherever he could get anyone to listen to him, and he thus drew down upon himself the eloquence of the dissenting pulpits and the derision of the local press. But the more they attacked him, the more zealously did he labor and defied his opponents to public discussion. Mormonism was bold, then, in Europe. It had no American history to meet in those days. This and a great deal more I had heard discussed in glowing language by my relatives and friends, and thus the young missionary, Elder Stenhouse, was by name no stranger to me. It was Elder Stenhouse who now addressed the meeting, and I listened to him with attention. The reader must remember that at that time polygamy was unheard of as a doctrine of the saints, and the blood atonement, the doctrine that Adam is God, together with the polytheism and priestly theocracy of after-years, were things undreamed of. The saving love of Christ, the glory and fullness of the everlasting gospel, the gifts and graces of the Spirit, together with repentance, baptism, and faith, were the points upon which the Mormon teachers touched. And who can wonder that, with such topics as these, and fortifying every statement with powerful and numerous texts of Scripture, they should captivate the minds of religiously inclined people. However this may be, I can only confess that as I listened to Elder Stenhouse's earnest discourse, I felt my antipathy to Mormonism rapidly melting away. At the close of the service, when he left the platform, he was warmly received by the brethren and sisters, for so the saints speak of one another, and they came about him to shake hands, or it might be to seize the opportunity of slipping a trifle into his hand to help him in his work. Young and old, the poor and their more wealthy neighbors mingled together like one happy family. It was altogether a most pleasing scene, and whatever explanation may yet be given to Mormonism in America, one thing I know, the facts of its early history in Europe are among the most pleasant reminiscences of my life. Elder Stenhouse came up in a familiar and open-hearted way to my mother and sisters, and I was introduced to him as the other daughter from France. He kindly welcomed me, and when I frankly told him the state of my mind, he made, I must admit, a successful attempt to solve my doubts and when I left the meeting it was with sentiments towards the saints and their religion far different from those which I entertained when I entered. This meeting was a memorable era in my life. End of chapter 2